Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Colts Coffee and Conversation. My name is Carl. And I'm Holly. I'd like to welcome to our first episode of our next cult. Yay! It's called The People's Temple of Reverend Jim Jones. Yeah, it's pretty dark, folks. It's pretty dark. But we're going we're, we're gonna to get through it. Before we get into Reverend Jim Jones and The People's Temple, we must do our disclaimer first. We are just regular, normal people. We have normal lives, normal jobs. This is for entertainment purposes only. There, that's it. We don't hold degrees in any kind of theology. Nope, nope no theology or anything to that effect. There it is. So, uh, of course, I am obviously talking about cults, but we also must talk about our coffee. And I'm drinking, believe it or not, I'm keeping it basic. Folgers Black Silk. Mmm, it's actually really good, I'm not going to lie. Do you have any creamer in it? I do. I just do I do the Italian sweet cream. Okay, and I have my Spanish latte. Okay, fancy. <laughs> A little spicy. Very nice. They're very delicious. All right, you ready to get into it? I am. All right, let's go on a journey talking about Reverend Jim Jones. Now, Reverend Jim Jones was born May 13th in 1931. Of course, he is the only child to uh, James and Lynette. Now, let's talk about his parents real quick because it does play a role in his uh, molding of being a man. Now, uh, his father, he was a day laborer before World War One. So this is, we're going way back, folks. Now, World War One, during his time, he ended up being disabled with uh, a scarred lungs due to a, a excessive use of mustard gas that was used uh, in, in, in France. And uh, also, he had a grade school education. He collected disability checks from the government, and that was his only source of income. He was always sick, and also he was very weak. Yes, this World War One issue, It I just saw a documentary about it. They Shall Not Grow Old. Peter Jackson did a great documentary, but it's not for the faint of heart. No. He did, he did some actual live footage, brought it to life, but it showed the average day of a foot soldier in those trenches in France in World War One, and it was pretty harrowing. So this mustard gas, not only was he his body broken down, but I'm sure his spirit was too. Oh, oh, I, I absolutely, absolutely, I bet. Now his mother Lynetta, now she was she ended up becoming the family uh, breadwinner, uh, the sole family breadwinner. Now she worked at two jobs, uh, she worked at Crate Elevator and also at Miller Tool Company Incorporated. Now. They lost their farm due to the Depression. Remember, this is the Depression era, and they couldn't pay the mortgage. So they obviously, they had to leave. Now, this woman, though, was very strong and determined, but she did rarely smile. Uh, she was not a very happy woman at all. Uh, she went to work early and then came home late, according to uh, uh, Jim Jones's friend, Donald Foreman. You made everyone. She made everyone feel uncomfortable, and she hated her environment. Like well, I said. yes, I guess so. I would guess I would hate my environment too. The generation that came up during that depression; these were adults in the depression, not the children. Which my mother was brought up in the depression, so she was a child of the depression. But these would have been her parents' era. They were very stern. They were very stoic. Very hard workers. And uh, that seemed to be the way it was in those days. Yeah. After they lost the farm, uh, they moved to uh, Lynn, Indiana. Now, they lived in the poor side uh, of town. Very minimal existence, according to another uh, friend of Jim Jones, Bill Townsend. Of course, in that home, there was no love and no affection at the house. 
Jim would wander the streets of Lynn with no supervision. He was uh, alone a lot. With this minimal existence in those days, it has been told that when they would eat, they would just have a can of beans. Okay, they wouldn't have mashed potatoes, meat, vegetables, salad. You know, they wouldn't have that type of variety. Yeah. So that was very minimal and sometimes less than not only no luxuries, sometimes no necessities also. Well, I know that he was also mentioning um, uh, during during what, we were, what I was watching. By the way, what we were watching, I do apologize, didn't say it. It's a, it's a Jim Jones documentary. It's on YouTube. Uh, just type in Jim Jones documentary or just Jim Jones. And, of course, you're going to get the rapper. But, <laughs> but if you scroll down a little bit, it's right there. Jim Jones says documentary. Uh, but the, they were talking about uh, when they would go over to his house, there would be... A chair, right? There's a sofa, very, very minimal. One light existence. hanging from a, from a, the power cord, and you just click the little thing. I mean, it was very to say minimal is 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 an understatement. So, very, 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 very poor. During this time when Jim, you know, was wandering the streets, you know, alone, their next door neighbor Myrtle Ken- uh, Kennedy. Uh, yeah, Myrtle goes, Kennedy yeah. was the next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. She took Jim under her wing and became his surrogate mother, mm. introduced Jim to the church, and Jim found the love and affection in the church. It was a holy roller church. Yeah, which basically, if you don't know that term of a holy roller, folks, it's... Pentecostal. Pentecostal, that's right. They speak in tongues. And they do a lot of singing, and they have a lot of emotion in the church. Yeah, there's also, you've heard the phrase, dancing in the aisles. Yes. Yeah, that, that would be them. more. But uh, by the time uh, Jim was 10, Jim was uh, preaching to uh, boys and girls. Yes, he was having funerals for dogs, cats, birds. And he would have his revival meetings at night. These are he would gather up the children of the neighborhood to have his revival meetings. Yeah. So according to Donald Foreman, once again, he would not allow people to leave the the revivals. He would lock them up in the attic and wouldn't let them leave. So that's kind of dark. But at least we know he got the seed planted of wanting to become either a preacher or a speaker or somewhere of that sort. Now, he had the skill of getting people to do uh, what he wanted to do, according to Dr. Hatcher. He was fascinated that he, fascinated by that, how he could control a group of people, and now he, he honed on, on his craft about doing that. He have a question, Carl. Yeah. Did he have any friends his own age? He may have had a few. I mean, not a lot. It doesn't, they don't mention too much of it because he, he spent most of his time in the library just trying to get as much information as possible. I know that they were saying they were studying uh, socialism, uh, Gandhi, Karl Marx, and communism. So he was really, really into that. But he also showed signs of darkness. Now, once again, Donald Foreman comes again and said that at one point, he, of course, like I said, he locked a, locked people up in the attic. But this time he did it for fun. And uh, he shot him with a BB gun a few times as well. And then after he would do that, give him like a, a look like and a smirk. So... When, so he knew what he was doing was exactly wrong. Exactly what he was doing was wrong. He just wanted to make sure that you knew he knew that he knew. Uh, now, in 1948, his mother uh, leaves his father for another man, and this time he was at the age of 16. And then once that happened, they moved to uh, Richmond, Indiana. Now, uh, he would uh, carry his Bible around all the time. The thing is where he was going, that's where it was very interesting. He would preach on the streets in the corner of the black neighborhoods, uh, preaching equality. Now, during this time, like I said, it's 1948, guys. This is not 
even the 60s. This is the 40s. So it's a whole different... Right, it's post-World War Two. Yeah, it's a whole different world at that time. So the black community were shocked that, you know, that is message. But they did accept him. So then it's where he started to get into, quote, say, quote, unquote... Started his preaching, his, his practicing his, his, his preaching. practicing his preaching, yeah, yes. Yes, and point. so he worked as an orderly at Reed Memorial Hospital in the town. Yeah. Uh, now, when he was doing that, he worked with one of his friends, Max Knight... Now, this is one of his friends. He said that he was an excellent worker. They they had a lot of high high praise for him because he was such a great worker. But he, he did have the dark side, and here it comes again, Donald Foreman. It looks like he picked on Donald Foreman a lot, but uh, he witnessed Jim Jones dry-shaving a patient. He was upset that Donald lathered up his face, and Jim snatched the bowl on the razor away from him. When he was, when he was seeing him do the dry-shaving, the guy was like literally crying is what he was saying. So after that, a week later, Donald ended up just quitting the job. I think the reason he quit the job was because he did report him, but because he was such a hard worker and he had a lot of people, he was charming, he could have a lot of people on his side. I don't think that they believed, they did not believe Donald Foreman. You're right. I, I would, it wouldn't shock me if you were not right. Yeah. Of course, during that time, of course, Jim met his future wife, Marcel Baldwin. Uh, she was four years older than him. Now, he graduated, though, in high school. Graduated in 1948 from Richmond High School with honors. He's not a very, very dumb individual. He's extremely smart. He's very bright. You know, he rolled at Indiana University, which is in Bloomington. Now, Jim and Marceline got married later on in 1949 in June. Now, Jim was, according to some, very abusive mentally and always claimed her to be too religious. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. But I think what happened, there was a time, as I recall, that he was questioning his faith in God. And so there was times where he was on fire when he was younger, doing the revival meetings and preaching on the corners. But then by the time he went through college, he was wondering and, and questioning his faith, which is not uncommon for a college student. Yeah, exactly. 1951... Jim and uh, Marceline moved to Indianapolis, uh, so he became a minister and a student pastor at Somerset Southside Methodist Church. Yeah, that's another thing. He went from being a Pentecostal to a Methodist, <laughs> which seems a little, uh, you know, at at odds. So um, my thought is that he just saw an opportunity. He's a chameleon. He could be whatever anybody wanted him to be. Mm-hmm. So he became a Methodist. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Now, during this time, uh, he had a very strange job, just to make ends meet, because they weren't making an, enough money being the, uh, the the student pastor. So he started selling monkeys door-to-door. Um, that seems a little strange to me, because obviously now those are exotic animals, and we can't sell them door-to-door. Yeah. But, but I guess back in 1951, it was a different... Different it was time. just different, yeah. It was a different time. And, of course, to make ends meet. But the thing is, with, with he was extremely successful at this. So, you know. Well, he loved animals. Yes. He did have a lot of affection for animals. And he was charming, and he could get people to buy things. And that's what, you know, he he did know how to sell. Yeah, he did. He was a good salesman. Later on that, that, that year, uh, the Methodist Church didn't give him any flexibility that he wanted, obviously. Uh, when you're going from charismatic to Methodist, it's it's from an untucked shirt to a little movement to stiff starch. Okay. So, you know, so he started to leave. And in 1954, he decided to start his own church. 
and it was a uh, racially mixed church called the Community Unity. During this time, he spoke very charismatically, and he was very eloquent as well. And he uh, started to proclaim that he could heal people. So he was one of those, um, started to become like a Benny Hinn type of... Okay, so he started his healing services. Yes, his healing services, yeah. So in uh, 1956, uh, he put money down on a real church. Now, this church had stained glass windows. It was actually in a building that was designed to be a church. It was first called the, the Wings of Deliverance, but then he ended up changing it to what it was known until the end, the People's Temple. Jones called it more of a movement than a church. He preaching the gospel of socialism and equality. Yes, he, he established soup kitchens yeah. and clothed the poor. Yeah. Now, his congregation, like I said, was really mixed. You know, he had you know some whites and some Hispanics, but the majority ended up becoming black. It was a very a large black uh, uh, congregation. Well, it explains a lot because when you know when he was sixteen, he was accepted into the black community. So it makes sense. Now, did he ever have a family of his own, Carl? You know what? During this time, he, well, at this time in 1959, yes, he ended up having a his only biological son. It was 1959. He was born in June 1959. And that was his name was a Stephen Gandhi Jones. So he thought really highly of Gandhi, so he gave Gandhi's middle name to his son. And now uh, they were the, also, this is where they made headline news, the Jones family, which put them pretty much on the radar for everyone in Indiana, as they were the, the first family to adopt a black child in you mean Minneapolis. the first white family. Yes, the first, well, yes, the first white family to adopt a black child in Indianapolis, and, that, and his name was James Warren Jones Jr. So he gave him the, the, his full name. And he also adopted three Korean girls as well. Okay, so in a in a sense, from this documentary, his biological no, it was his adopted son that said and felt that this was all some kind of a staged, you know, adoptions to show he they were a rainbow family and it was going to help him politically. Yeah. Oh, and well, and remember, once again, you got to understand the timeline. It's in the fifties. So this was just, what he's doing is, I want to say way ahead of the curve is, mm-hmm. is an understatement. It's 100 yards ahead of the curve or more. Now in 1960, uh, since he's got all this, you know, since he has a rainbow family, he became the head of the Human Rights Commission. So that, there's part of his political influence. He becomes that. And then he, he would, during this time when he was the Human Rights Commission, desegregated restaurants, movie theaters, and he also opened up jobs for minorities in hospitals and the police force. So he was very active politically in the community. That helped him in his political sense. Now, what I don't understand is the next section, because in 1962, he was getting a lot of nervousness about the nuclear war possibilities. Now, the thing was, in 1961, there was a thing called the Bay of Pigs, right. which was the Cuban crisis that Kennedy had in 1961. So this is probably something that fueled Jim Jones in his fear of having nuclear attack. Yeah, well, it's so much so that he read an article in Esquire magazine that if, in case of a nuclear nuclear bomb going off, there's nine places to, the nine safest places to live. Well, he just, 1962, he decides to move to one of those places, which was uh, Belo uh, Horizonte, uh, which is near Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. 
Now, he began to believe that the the world was coming to an end. So this was in his head. Oh, and then, of course, it was nice for him because he was able to have the church keep sending him money. So he didn't really have to do anything, just live safely in Brazil while they are there raising money for, for him. him. During this time, you know, uh, the church started to fall apart, obviously. Oh, yes, because he wasn't there to keep it going. Wasn't there to keep it going. Because so. this is a personality that everyone loved. The personality is gone. They're, they're not going to be interested in going to the church. Exactly. Well, the church ended up almost closing its doors. They... They basically called him frantically saying he needs to come back. He needs to come back. Because well, he had to anyway because the money wasn't going to come after the, if the church door closed. Oh, of course. So he had no choice but to, exactly, he had no choice but to come back. The church went from a few thousand down to a hundred. So that's, that's a big, that's a big decline in attendance. So of course he returns to Indianapolis in 1964, but he was still paranoid thinking of a few things. One, for some reason, he had it in his head that the IRS was investigating him. Looked into that. They weren't. Um, and well, also, it's probably something that he was doing wrong and he had a guilty conscience about. Probably, probably. And then, of course, he was still stuck on that nuclear uh, nuclear holocaust thing. So that was always on, on his mind. Now, during this time also, like I said, it's in the 60s, in the middle of civil rights era. He was under a lot of pressure and was constantly attacked by uh, racist conservatives. So he was searching for a safe place for his church, a place where they can find a, a safe haven. And they found, he did find one in uh, Redwood Valley, California. Now that is north of San Francisco. It's probably, it's over 100 miles north of San Francisco. Mm. So in 1965... He moves the entire uh, church. Well, at Jones least 140 family. of them. Yep, Jim, yeah, the Jones family, 140, they ended up uh, moving to Redwood. Now, he established a commune there and attracted a lot of middle-class white people as well. And, of course, he picked the perfect place because, you know, San Francisco and that whole Bay Area was pretty much one of those. Oh, yes, this is before the Summer of Love, but they were they were coming up onto that. Mm-hmm. They were very open-minded to, like, oh, my gosh, there's this guy who... Obviously, he's charismatic. Mm -hmm. He's coming with the church, and it's completely And at this point, though, it was more of a socialistic, communal message. communal living. Yeah, it's yeah, communal not, living. Not as much Christian anymore. No, 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 it was not. Because uh, uh, during this time that uh, they, they he adopted a lot of non-Christian uh, So you're saying beliefs. open thinking and attitudes. Yeah, open thinking and attitudes. Now, what I mean by that is that, of course, women were raised in high standards. There, were, there was no glass ceiling for women to, I don't want to say call claim power, but obtain They had a lot of responsibilities. responsibilities. The, most of these women, Jim Jones would put these women in charge of the finances and all the assets of the church. So you're talking millions and millions of dollars worth of assets at that time. And, of course, in the corporate world, these women would never have that opportunity during the 60s. Okay. Now, all now here's the thing where it starts to get a little weird, is that he also believed in free love and free sex. That, that started to creep in. And then also he had sexual authority over every woman and man. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Of, yeah, it's interesting, though, how he... He just one day probably didn't just announce it, so it was a, a gradual trickle, trickle, a trend towards this, and the people just accepted it. Yeah, well, during this time as well, he ended up taking on his first mistress, Carolyn Moore Layton. That's one of many, is what it what it was saying. So of course, 
He, during this time, he began teaching the denial of a supreme being and started calling himself God. So that's where, this is the turning point of where it gets really, really weird. Um, he later began recruiting heavily and with success in, of course, Los Angeles and San Francisco. Now, the People's Temple were were doing something that just most churches during that time, once again, they just weren't doing. They were, they were in, it was a full-blown, integrated church. They didn't care what you looked like. They just said, come on in. Now, during this time, Jim Jones began injecting himself with drugs, uh, speed specifically, which gave him the, the stamina to continue to recruit, give him the full-time energy to con constantly be that high-energy person when he started speaking, when he started teaching. And he didn't care about the addictive. He did not care about it at all. And then, when we get to that point, around 1972, the People's Temple officially moved to San Francisco. Okay, and then that's where we're going to stop for this episode, Carl. Yes, we're going to stop here. I know, guys, it's a, it, we went a little bit longer with the last one, but some of these timelines or some of these times are going to be fluctuating. So that's where we're going to stop. Okay, and where can they contact us? Well, they're going to, like I said, contact us on Twitter. Let us know what you think. Uh, it's at ColtsCoffeeCon1. We also have our Instagram up, Colts Coffee Convo. We have our Facebook page, Colts Coffee Conversation. Of course, we have our email address, ColtsCoffeeConvo at gmail.com. You can hear us on Anchor, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcaster, Google Play. Anywhere you get a podcast, that's where you're gonna that's where you'll find us. Let us know what you think. Subscribe, subscribe, please subscribe. Give us five stars. Give us five stars. Put a comment on there. Let us know you love it. Give us five stars. Tell us you hate it. I don't care. Just give us the five stars. We're begging, pleading. Anyway, that's it for now. Thank you for listening. Good night, Holly. Good night, Carl.